Welcome to City Church. City Church is a biblically-based, relationally-driven, spirit-led church, encouraging everyone to follow Jesus and serve others. We're excited to share this sermon with you today, and you can always find out more about us online at citychurchseville.com. Well, this week I was driving home again, and uh, as I was pulling into my neighborhood, I saw a familiar license plate. And that license plate has a purple heart on it, a purple heart. When I saw that license plate, it made me think about, uh, I wish I could speak to that person. I wish I could find out what they did as far as militarily in the service of our country, how they were wounded and why they are, they've got this purple heart on their license plate. It struck me. Now, I might be a little bit different than you are, but I can have a little bit of a strange way of thinking of things, but after I saw that purple heart, and I've seen that license plate in my neighborhood before, I'm assuming they live near me, um, it kind of struck me about not only the purple heart, but how many personalized license plates I see in my neighborhood. So I went home and I did some research. I wanna tell you what I found. I found that Virginia has the unique distinction of having the most vanity plates of any state in the country. So if you're online and you're not with us here in Virginia, you are not vain. Our state is very vain. And I looked up and it was stunning. I found an article that gave me all of the numbers and in the sense of uh, how many vanity plates there are, this fascinated me. Uh, it tells us that 1,065,217 vanity plates are here in Virginia, and there are only 6,578,773 vehicles registered. So 16% of the drivers in Virginia are vain. They're vain drivers. Now what I also found out was even more fascinating. And what I found in an article in the Washingtonian, it explained this, that if you apply for a vanity plate, there are 30, thousand instances that a computer will take into account to reject that vanity plate. 30,000 different somethings that they utilize to search out vanity plates that they don't want shown in our state. And it was interesting because in this article, they used the Freedom of Information Act and got the entire list of every plate that's ever been rejected. Of course, they had to post them. Now, the idea was, though, was that as followers of Jesus, I have a question. How many of you have a vanity plate? I'm sorry, a personalized plate. We can't have a vanity. Raise your hand really high. Yeah, really. Look around. Real high. Seriously, confess it before God and man. Some of you are really hesitant right now. And if you're in your home, raise your hand if you have a vanity plate. So you got one, right? Now, the idea here is, though, is how many of us don't have a vanity plate, but you don't have any Christian bumper stickers or the little ichthus on the back of your car either? Raise your hand. You don't have that either. I have a question. Why don't you have that? I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why. Because your driving, you know, is more heathen and pagan than Christian. 
You know that, right? You've thought about putting I love God on my bumper sticker, but you know that if people follow you and see how you drive, you will defy the fact, am I, I'm on, that's true. Some of you are nodding, yes, yes. Now, here's what has struck me. Again, kind of a weird way of thinking that I have. What kind of struck me was this, was that driving reveals our view of the law and also what is in our heart. Can I confess something to you? A couple of weeks ago, I was driving and I was late getting somewhere. And the person in front of me was joyriding like a Sunday afternoon, only this was Tuesday morning. And have you ever noticed that if you're late somewhere, there will be someone who's joyriding? I could literally feel the tension in my body building. And I'm saying to them, don't you know the speed limit? And they're doing like eight miles an hour below the speed limit. That is a sin. Driving over the speed limit is a sin, but under too much sin as well. And so here I am driving, and it just struck me again. I I could just feel myself inside getting bunged up and just... Reality of it is, driving reveals what's in your heart, and it reveals how you view the law, how you view the law. And ultimately, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. The Sermon on the Mount is all about, in many ways, the law of God from the Older Testament, and then Jesus looking at the Older Testament law and then bringing to us a new reality, a new spiritual way to follow God. Now, I don't like to do this normally, but because of our reading, because of what we're going to look at in the scriptures this morning from the Sermon on the Mount, there's a deep theological point that I'm going to make right out of the gate. Normally, I'd wait later into the sermon, but just because of the the order of reading, I'm going to be making a deep theological point right at the beginning, and here we go. Jesus, if you were here for the first sermon on the Sermon on the Mount, you know that Jesus is standing in the stead of Moses. Moses went up on a mountain. He delivered the law of God to to Israel, to God's people. And now Jesus is standing on a what? He's on a mountain. He's delivering the Sermon on the Mount. And if you track Matthew, you realize very quickly that Jesus is your new Moses. That's how Matthew presents him. So Matthew gets up on the, on the mount, or Jesus gets up on the mountain in the book of Matthew, and he starts with the Beatitudes, but by chapter, or verse 17 of Matthew 5, now he's dealing with the law of Moses. And so in Matthew 5, 17, here's what Jesus says, and we need to catch this. He says this, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Fascinating. Because almost all Christians believe that the Older Testament law, the second Jesus showed up, was just blown to bits. Notice again what Jesus says. I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to do that, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them. If you were to read on, here's what you discover. I'm going to read it very quickly. Reading on, Jesus says this, For I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter 
nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the question is this. If Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, then what did he come to do? He came to fulfill it, to fulfill it. So again, this is the deeper theological point at the outset. What does it mean to fulfill? Well, the book of Matthew helps us. Because 13 times in the book of Matthew, the gospel tells us that Jesus fulfilled something from the Older Testament 13 times. Or in Jesus' life, these are fulfilled. The first one is found in Matthew chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. It's the exact same Greek word that Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount concerning the fulfillment or fulfilling the law. Not abolishing it, but fulfilling it. Matthew 1, 22 through 23. This is speaking of his mother, Mary, following the, the reality where the angel comes, she conceives of Christ, she conceives Jesus. Here's what it says. All this took place to, what's the word? Fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God's with us, or God with us. That if you'll notice, there's a little footnote in your Bible, is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So here's what we need to understand. When it comes to the Older Testament law and the laws of Moses, Jesus came to fulfill them. To fulfill them. What does that mean? To fulfill the law means this, that those biblical passages come to life. They are walked out. They are done appropriately and properly. So what Jesus says, and the Gospel of Matthew tells us, is that in looking at the Older Testament law, Jesus didn't come to obliterate it. He came to walk it out. He came to bring those passages to life. He came to show us what it looks like when the 613 laws of Moses are lived properly. That's what he came to show us. So he came to practice them and to teach them. So if you want to know what it looks like to fulfill, to practice and to teach the 613 laws of the Old Testament, look to Jesus. So after stating that, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to walk it out. I came to show you what it looks like. I came to literally demonstrate what it looks like when someone truly fulfills the law of God. He brings to us one of the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandment that we're going to start with is murder. Murder. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 24. Here's what the text tells us. Jesus speaking here. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Now let's pause. That's one of the Ten Commandments. So Jesus is referencing the giving of the law of Moses on a mountain. Now he's standing on a mountain, and he's going to explain that law. 
So it says, anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. That's the Ten Commandments. He says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister is subject to judgment. Hmm. Again, anyone says, anyone who says to brother or sister, Raka, by the way, that Raka is Arabic just for a term of contempt, just where you contempt somebody, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Verse 23, therefore, everything that Jesus said up until that point about murder, that it's one of the laws of God, and he says, but now if you have anger in your heart, verse 23, he says, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother or your sister has something against you, that's fascinating to me has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar, go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. So in other words, Jesus looks at the law, do not murder, and he interprets it properly. He says, this is how you live it out. In other words, you don't wait until you kill someone. What you do is you recognize if there's anger, Or if there's someone who has something against you, you deal with it. Here's what we need to understand. For Jesus, to fulfill the law is not not doing something. So in other words, I was raised in a church, whenever I heard the Sermon on the Mount, here's what I was told about Jesus. Jesus walked out the 613 laws and he ticked every box. And because he ticked every box, he fulfilled them. It's not what Jesus is teaching. For Jesus to fulfill the law is not not doing something. Actually, fulfilling the law means that we are proactive, that we go after it that we don't wait, but we jump in and we tackle what's in front of us. So notice what Jesus says in verses, verse 23 and 24. Don't sit there and just tick the box. Well, my good friend Jeff is sitting up here to my right. Uh, Jeff and I are good friends. Let's say I'm angry against Jeff and I go, ah, I'm good to go because I didn't kill Jeff. Tick the box. That's what people during Jesus' day believed it meant to live the law. Just don't kill Jeff you're good. Jesus says, oh, no, 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 no. It's not how this works. Jesus says to walk out the law, to fulfill the law, means we become proactive. And he paints an incredible scenario that if you're stepping into the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem and you're bringing your offering to God and you remember that there's a relationship that's broken in your life, set that offering down, go back, find that person, make it right, and then come back in again and then worship God. It's stunning. Stunning. But you see, here we are sitting in worship. Maybe you're worshiping with us online at home. And as you hear Jesus talking about how to fulfill the law, you recognize that you have a relationship that isn't what it should be. You recognize that. That something's wrong, and you know it. We're going to stop right now and pray. Right now. 
Because if Jesus says you're in the midst of worship and you remember that someone's got something against you, go make it right, what we're going to do now is stop. We're going to bring it to Jesus. So close your eyes. Let's pray. Jesus, some of us have been uneasy all morning in the midst of worship because we have a relationship that isn't right. Jesus, we now pause, and we believe what we've been learning for weeks about the Sermon on the Mount, that you are the center of it. And so as the center of the Sermon on the Mount, we bring that broken relationship to you, that relationship that isn't right. We bring it to you now in prayer, and we ask that you would invest your Holy Spirit in the midst of it that you would give us wisdom on how to walk this out, how to practice this, so that we can be a group of people who live in right relationship with people and in right relationship with you. In Jesus' name, help us. Amen. Then Jesus moves on to one of the other Ten Commandments. It's adultery. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, here's what the text says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. It's one of the ten. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what Jesus begins to teach us is, is that being proactive just isn't external, it's also internal. The Sermon on the Mount begins to challenge us that it's not just ticking the box, I have not committed adultery. Instead, Jesus brings it internal into the heart. Remember, the law of Moses to Jesus is not not doing something. The law of Moses to Jesus is proactive. Now, here's what's incredible about what Jesus just said. Notice what Jesus said. He said, um, if the man has lusted, he has committed adultery with her. Where? In his heart. Now, this is stunning. In many parts of the Middle East, even to today, if a man lusts, it's the woman's fault. Got to catch this. She did not cover herself properly. And you'll see cultures throughout the Middle East where women have to dress a certain way. And one of the reasons for that is, is so that a man won't lust. Notice where Jesus puts the pivot on that. He says that's the man's problem. Did you catch this? It's fascinating. So Jesus actually steps in and kind of brings in a new reality. Now, here's what I know, and every time I've ever taught college students on this, I'll have a student come up to me and say, Pete, you need to know that it's not just men that can lust, it's women too. So there, I just said it. But I want you to catch what Jesus says. Jesus says that, listen, It's not not committing adultery for his followers. It's that when we recognize that in our hearts, what is happening is outside of God's best for us relationally, we stop and we deal with it. 
we deal with it. And as I was putting this message together, I felt as though God put it in my heart that some of us, maybe here or online, that you've actually been strategizing a way to move towards a relationship that is outside of God's best for your life. You've been doing that. There's also others of us who's sitting here and as we're listening to what Jesus is saying, it makes total sense to us. Well, what we're going to do now is we're gonna stop, we're gonna deal with it. We're gonna bring it to Jesus. So let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for teaching us how to walk out the law, what it looks like to fulfill it. Lord, many of us might not be able to tick the box in this area in the sense of, yes, I went and did that, but we've ticked the box and said, but here's what I didn't do, and yet in our hearts, there's lust. There are desires that are outside of your best for us. And so in this moment, Jesus, we bring them to you as the one who is at the center of the Sermon on the Mount. We pray that you would touch us that you would free us up, that you would allow us to be men and women who build love in where lust currently holds a place. Jesus, thank you for teaching us and giving us the strength to do that in Christ's name, in Jesus' name. And then reading on, Jesus teaches more He says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 39 through 42, Jesus dives into another law that the Jewish people of his day are living by. Matthew 5, 39 through 42, and here's what it says. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. And every one of us Americans who are totally into our rights say, no way. Not doing this. Would you think the Romans that heard Jesus teach on this were any different than us? Not at all. So what does Jesus mean? Eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Well, I love what Dr. King said about this. Dr. King said the following. The old law of an eye for an eye leaves everyone blind. It destroys communities and makes humanity impossible. It creates bitterness in the survivors and brutality in the destroyers. You see, that law was instituted in the Older Testament to make sure that the punishment equaled the crime. That's why it's there. In other words, if someone comes and steals something from you, you can't go and burn their barn down. It has to be commensurate with the crime. There's a sense of kind of putting things in its place. That's why the law was there. And yet Jesus shows up and says, you've heard eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I'm gonna tell you something different. 
And then he gives an odd example that's hard for us to understand. And it is this. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. So what in the world does that mean? Does that mean if someone hauls off and punches you, you just turn and go, yep, right here, punch me again. Here's what it means. In Jewish culture of Jesus' day, the only way you ever reached out or involved yourself with another person was with your right hand only. Your left hand, TMI, was used for sanitary purposes. Let me just put it that way. So you only ever, in Jesus' day, involved people with your right hand. So I want you to picture this. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, and the only way they're going to move towards you is with their right hand, how are they hitting you? They're backhanding you. It's a public insult. It's a way of demeaning you and dehumanizing you. That's what happens. So if it's right hand only, they strike the right cheek. Jesus says, if you're there and someone demeans you publicly and slaps you across the face, then turn them the other as well. In other words, reveal the injustice. If someone takes you to court and sues you for your cloak, take your shirt off and hand it to them as well. Because if they're suing you for your cloak, that's all you have left. Show the injustice. You catch what Jesus is doing here? Also, the Roman Empire had a law that they could walk up to any civilian and demand that you carry their shield and their spear for a mile. So if someone comes up, puts a spear in your throat, a Roman does, and you realize what's happening, what does Jesus say? Carry it another mile. Show the injustice. Show it publicly. Expose the injustice that's happening. But what Jesus is teaching is that if you retaliate with eye for eye and tooth for a tooth, we will destroy humanity. Jesus is ushering in a new kingdom. There's a new way to walk before God. And oh, by the way, let's look at the life of Jesus. Not only did he teach it, but he walked it. He did both. And then in closing, Jesus says, the toughest thing that has ever been written in antiquity. It was never written before, and no one's ever wanted to write it since. And it's Matthew 5, 43 through 47. Jesus speaking here says this, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Isn't it fascinating? Jesus lived in a culture that was filled with curses. We know this. 
There's been excavations done in Israel. I've been there and I've seen them where there were these little slate tiles and on the slate tiles were etched a person's name and curses. They're all over Israel. It was a way of functioning in the ancient world. If you didn't like someone, you cursed them and you etched it, made it permanent. What Jesus says is this. If someone comes against you and they hate you, Bless them. Bless them. As a matter of fact, in the Sermon on the Plain, which mirrors the Sermon on the Mount, in Luke chapter 6, verse 28, Jesus says the following. Bless those who curse you. In other words, people that want the worst for you, not the best. People that come against you. Jesus says, in his kingdom, you learn to love them. You bless them instead of curse them. As we close out our time, we're going to put feet to our faith. I'm going to ask that you would stand with me now. As we stand together and we stand into God's presence, we're going to take a moment and we're going to bless someone. Maybe you don't have this in your life, but I'm assuming most of us do that there is someone in our lives that we know does not want the best for us. Maybe they've even cursed us. We're going to take a moment now before we worship and we're going to pray a prayer of blessing over them. Take a moment and is God bringing someone to mind? Someone that you know doesn't want the best for you, they want the worst. Some have even told you that. Some have said things to you that have just crumbled your insides. Jesus says, don't respond the same way. What Jesus says is speak blessing. I can say this emphatically. Over 31 years of pastoral ministry, I've watched hundreds of people be set free from bitterness, rage, and anger when they have blessed those who've cursed them. Something breaks. Something happens. Jesus is at the center of the Sermon on the Mount. So let's take a moment and pray blessing. If you're home and you're watching this online, I want you to take a moment and literally in in your mind's eye stand in front of that person that has cursed you. That person that does not want God's best for you. Dear Jesus, As men and women, we stand in faith in the name of Jesus. We can't do this in our own strength. We stand in faith in the name of Jesus and we pray blessing over that person. God bless them. Let your love fill them. Let your grace and your mercy reach them. God, let your hand of kindness be turned towards them. And may they experience your peace in this very moment. Let your powerful arm and your gentle hand extend the miles and bring this blessing in Christ's name. Amen.